Good morning, church. What you just witnessed is referred to as Mary's Magnificat, and it comes from Luke chapter 1. So if you brought a Bible and you want to open to Luke chapter 1, we're going to begin reading in a moment in verse 46. It's Mary's song of praise when the reality that she was carrying the Son of God became clear to her. We'll talk about that in a minute. In the weeks leading up to Christmas, I want to uh, show you what the world received when it received Jesus Christ uh, born in Bethlehem. In other words, I know you're familiar with the Christmas story. We all know about the wise men who traveled following a star. There was a star in the sky and it was going the wrong direction. It was obvious. These men studied the sky. They studied the stars, and so they followed it on a long and arduous journey until they came to the Christ child. You know about Joseph having to return to Bethlehem because Augustus Caesar had declared a census. A census would be taken of the entire Roman world, and we would tax them, and so he and Mary arrive in Bethlehem at just the right time for her to give birth to the Son of God, just as the Old Testament book of Micah, chapter 5 and verse 2, said it would be. You know about Herod. You know about his jealousy. You know about everything surrounding the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. The shepherds are out watching their flocks at night, and the angel appeared to them, of all people, shepherds, the lowest of the low, to announce first the birth of God's Son. So instead of covering that very familiar ground, what I decided to do this year is to take the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. I want to dive a little deeper in and sh- into the story and show you how the very character and nature of God is on display. It's revealed in the Christmas story. Now, we call the birth of Jesus the incarnation. The incarnation. The word means deity in flesh or God in flesh. That means that even though that baby looked remarkably human, Even though the whole birth process seemed ordinary and average, even though that child would grow up and look, appear, walk, and talk just like any other little boy, in that bodily form existed God. In other words, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the entire attributes, the entire character and nature of the Trinity existed there in bodily form. Jesus, according to your Bible, was both human and divine, all at the same time. That's what makes his birth so miraculous. He appeared normal. He appeared unremarkable, but he was God. He was God in flesh. In the person of Jesus Christ, we examine, we see, they're on display. He demonstrated the very attributes of the Trinity. So, Over the next four weeks, I decided we're going to point out four of these. Last time, we talked about his sovereignty. The sovereignty of God is demonstrated in the Christmas story because of its timing. Paul said in Galatians chapter 4 that when the fullness of time had finally come, in other words, at the exact moment in time, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The sovereignty of God teaches that God is in control. And if you've ever wondered if there's anybody out there, anybody in charge, anybody guiding this ship through the night, the Bible teaches clearly that God is in charge. God is sovereign. He is in control of all. So we ought not worry so much. That ought to alleviate some of the anxiety that we carry around with ourselves. Today we're going to talk about mercy. 
Christmas demonstrates the mercy of God. You realize that in the bodily form of Jesus Christ, we have God's mercy personified. Okay, think about that. What I'm saying is, in that beautiful little baby lying in a manger, whose mother and father appear to be as proud as any new parent, in that baby exists God's mercy personified. Now, if you know anything about the life Jesus lived and the ministry he performed over the course of his 33 years, you know that Jesus often demonstrated mercy in high order. Jesus was always prepped. He was always ready to demonstrate God's love, his compassion, his kindness, his mercy. I think about the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. That story is all about the mercy of Jesus. I think about the woman at the well whose life had been a failure up until this point. But that story demonstrates the mercy of Jesus. I think about that thief dying alongside of Jesus on the cross, and yet Jesus promises today, you'll be with me in paradise. That is mercy of high order. You see, the mercy that was demonstrated by God the Father in the Old Testament, all the merciful things that God did in the Old Testament are now on display for the entire world to see. The Apostle Paul says it well in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead, you know what that word means? It means hopeless. It means miserable. Even when I was miserable, even when I was hopeless, dead in my transgressions, it is by grace that I've been saved. So every symbolic action or every symbol of God's mercy in the Old Testament would be fulfilled or realized by Jesus, God's Son, in the New Testament. Jesus was the embodiment of God's mercy. Now, when I use the term mercy, I'm willing to bet most of you assume you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because you probably have your own definition of mercy. I grew up with a definition I learned in Sunday school. Grace is receiving something from God that I do not deserve. Mercy is not receiving something from God that I do deserve. But even that's not a true theological, doctrinal definition of mercy. The Bible teaches in various ways, theologically, here's what mercy is. Mercy is God's infinite compassion. In other words, you cannot exhaust it. It will never run out. His infinite compassion demonstrated to the miserable. Mercy is special kindness. It's extraordinary loving kindness, and it's always related to suffering. It's always related to the miserable. You see, if the law says that I've wronged you and I owe you something, but a judge emancipates me, frees me, forgives me, then I have been granted mercy. But don't misunderstand. Mercy is not the same thing as pity. When the Bible says that God has mercy on us, it's not as if he looks down and says, look at those poor people pitiful human beings. That's not the way God sees you. That's not the way God sees me. It's far greater than pity. Mercy is not about feeling sorry for someone. Mercy instead is a complete and total understanding of our human plight. Driven by God's compassion, his mercy meets us in our misery. That's what the Bible teaches. You see, When our children behave like children, let's say you have a three-year-old and that three-year-old does what three-year-olds do, you don't chastise the kid. 
You don't punish the kid. You certainly don't pity the kid. Look at that poor, pitiful three-year-old. I'm going to disown you. No, you understand. Why do you understand? You have mercy. You understand that a three-year-old is going to do three-year-old kinds of things because he's only three. When I was in high school and college, getting through a 200-year-old novel and writing a report on it was one of the most difficult things I ever had to do. Now, today, I enjoy reading my Bible. I enjoy my study. I enjoy the research that's necessary to put together messages and lessons for Sundays. But when I was younger, <laughs> getting me to read a 200-year-old novel and then write a 10-page or a 20-page report, I'd rather take a beating. It was so difficult to get through. You know, even to this day, you're not going to find me on a day off, you know, curled up in a chair reading a book for recreation or relaxation. That's just not me. I'm going to be outside. I'm going to be on a tractor. I'm going to have a chainsaw in my hand. I'm going to be playing golf, you know, something like that. That's me. But when it comes to studying the Word of God, there's something in it I enjoy. The Bible, incidentally, is the only work of God's inspired revelation that comes with a promise of a blessing for those who read it. Maybe that's why I enjoy reading it. I'm looking for the next blessing. But to get me to read a 200-year-old novel back in the day was very, very difficult, ex with one exception. Les Miserables. You remember this story? Les Miserables, The Miserables. Okay? This was a story written by the French novelist Victor Hugo. It takes place in the French or during the French Revolution. And the main character in this story is a man by the name of Jean Valjean. Now, I put that on the screen so you didn't think I was making that up. This was the guy's name. Jean Valjean had been sentenced to hard labor because he had stolen some bread simply to feed his sister's starving children. He got caught stealing the bread, and they threw him in, a, in prison. After years in prison, hard labor, he's finally paroled. When he gets out, he wants to start over, but he can't start over because everybody looks at him as an ex-con. Everybody looks at him as a failure. He's an outcast. He is miserable because in spite of his best intentions, he cannot gain any momentum in a positive or productive direction until he meets a bishop. There's a saintly bishop who takes him in, provides for him, cares for him, gives him jobs, work to do, things to keep his hands busy. But society still looks down upon him. So in a moment of weakness, Jean Valjean steals a box of silverware from the bishop. He is caught promptly, caught red-handed basically, and he's ordered to return the silverware and he's going to go straight back to the prison from which he came. But the bishop does something extraordinary. The bishop claims that the silverware was a gift. And not only did the bishop give Jean Valjean the silverware, he gave him some other gifts as well. And Jean Valjean had never experienced any kind, anything like this. He had never known mercy to this great extent, and it changes everything for him. He sets out then to change his life, to live a life of compassion, kindness, and mercy. Now, most of us know that feeling. We may never have stolen a box of silverware, been caught, and then been forgiven, but I guarantee you we've all wronged someone we love, and I pray that you have experienced the joy, the indescribable joy of total forgiveness. But don't misunderstand. Mercy, specifically God's mercy, did not end at the close of Scripture or when Jesus ascended to the Father. Mercy is for you and me today. John Newton is a man who experienced the mercy of God. 
John Newton felt the warm embrace of God's mercy. John Newton was a hateful and brutal individual who in the 18th century was a slave trader. He made his living off of the backs of men and women in slavery. He beat and abused human beings for his own profit. And he denied the very existence of God. But there came a time in John Newton's life where he experienced Jesus Christ and the mercy that came with it. And that's when he penned those famous words. I know you know them. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. When John Newton died, his epitaph read, By the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, I have been preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith that I had so long labored to destroy. Now, to Mary. In the months preceding the birth of Jesus, Mary is just weeks pregnant at this point. She goes to visit with her cousin named Elizabeth. Elizabeth was also pregnant, very pregnant, with John the Baptist, the second cousin of Jesus, the forerunner of Christ. And the Bible says in Luke chapter 1 and verse 41 that when Mary entered Elizabeth's house, Elizabeth knew, she just knew. The baby actually leaped in her womb. And she said, Mary, you are highly blessed, highly favored of God. To which Mary responded, in song. It's a song of praise. I told you earlier, it's referred to as Mary's Magnificent, and it comes from chapter 1, verse 46. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. You see, the profound implications of the baby that Mary is carrying, thanks to visiting with Elizabeth, is now becoming clearer and clearer and clearer to young Mary. Verse 48. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. My friends, that is mercy defined. God is mindful of our humble estate. God is aware of our circumstances. God is aware of our human frailties. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him. In other words, Mary began to understand that the birth of Jesus Christ, her son, was going to confront the world with God's mercy like never before. When Jesus came into the world, Mary's beginning to realize that God's mercy is going to be on display in a grander fashion than at any other time in Israel's history. Verse 50, his mercy stands to those who, who fear him. From generation to generation, he's performed mighty deeds with his arm. He's scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones. He's lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things. He's sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful. It's not as if Mary feared God could forget to be merciful. Mary is emphasizing God's faithfulness, something we'll talk about next time. The fact that God would always be merciful to Abraham, to his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Now, the Old Testament term for mercy is a Hebrew word, hesed, H-E-S-E-D. Now, if we could speak Hebrew, we'd add a little to it. 
we'd say chesed. That's the way. You want to impress your friends. What would you learn about in church Sunday? Chesed. They're, not, they're going to think you're crazy. What kind of church do you go to? Chesed is God's mercy. It is most often translated in the Old Testament one of two ways. Either mercy or loving kindness. Let me just give you a few Old Testament examples of God's mercy, hesed, on display. Case study number one is Joseph. Do you remember the story of Joseph? Now, not Joseph, Mary's husband. Joseph in the book of Genesis. Half the book of the very first book in your Bible is the story of Joseph. Remember, Joseph was unfairly sold into slavery by his own family. Once he's in Egypt, he works for a man named Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife accuses him of attempting to rape her. Now, this was a completely made-up charge, but that didn't keep Joseph out of prison. Joseph finds himself in a dungeon. He's there unjustly. That's got to be the worst kind of suffering there is or the worst kind of injustice there is to be accused of something you didn't do and now to be paying the penalty. But if you know the story, all throughout the narrative, over and over and over and over again, the Bible reminds us that God was with Joseph. In the midst of his misery in that prison, God was with Joseph. And the Bible, over and over, shows us how God's mercy touched his life. It comes from uh, Genesis 39, verse 21. Just one example. The Lord was with Joseph. He showed him kindness. There's the word hesed and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. It means loving kindness. It means mercy. Joseph was incarcerated for something he did not do. His crime was completely made up, but hear me, his misery was very, very real. There's a principle here from Joseph's story, and that's God's mercy overcomes bitterness when we suffer unjustly. God's mercy overcomes bitterness when we suffer unjustly. If you know the story of Joseph, at the very end, when he confronts his brothers, who were the ones who sold him into slavery in the first place, he had nothing but mercy to share with his brothers. Nothing but forgiveness. That's what Joseph's story teaches us. God completely understands our situation. We didn't ask for this. Joseph didn't ask for any of it. And let's be honest. You and I, we may ask for a little of it, but we didn't ask for all of it. We made one bad choice. We took one bad turn, and that set us on a path, and it put us in a spot that we were miserable. We didn't think we'd ever get out, and yet, especially when other people pile on, when they cut us off, when they judge us, when they criticize us because of their assumptions regarding our circumstance, Joseph's story teaches us that God's mercy helps overcome the bitterness when we suffer unjustly. Here's case study number two. Do you know the story of Ruth? Ruth is a book in your Old Testament. Great story, beautiful story about a newlywed. Ruth married a woman named Naomi's son. In fact, Ruth and another lady married two of Naomi's sons. But shortly after Ruth is married, the men die. The husbands die. I can't imagine a more brutal outcome than to marry the love of your life, spend a matter of weeks with them, and then they're dead. It's egregious. Something like that happens, and we look to God and we say, what are you doing? How could you let this happen? This is too much. She's grieving. And oh, by the way, so is her mother-in-law. Naomi's lost her own son. But in the midst of both of their grieving... Naomi encourages Ruth by pointing to God's mercy. 
She says in Ruth chapter 1 and verse 8, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness. There it is, hesed, both occasions, to your husbands and to me. Tragedy struck Naomi and Ruth. And they're left dealing with shattered dreams, broken hearts. This wasn't supposed to turn out this way. I believe, as sure as I'm standing here, that we will all feel that kind of grief at one point in our life. I've been doing this too long to think that anyone is immune from this kind of loss, this kind of grieving. Remember the story of Ruth. Because the promise is this. Here's the principle. God's mercy relieves our pain when we grieve. God's mercy relieves our pain when we grieve. In addition to the hope that we have in Christ, there's a, there's a calm, there's a peace that can come over us. After the first service, an older man in our church said, I was married for 65 years, and when I buried my wife, and they, I walked up to the casket, I couldn't stop crying. I just couldn't stop crying. I'm a grown man, and I'm fully in control of myself, but at that moment, I lost control. Finally, after minutes that seemed like an eternity, he said, my, wife put her, or my daughter put her arm around me and said, Daddy, there are other people that want to see mama. And he said, all, all of a sudden something came over me, Some, an assurance. He said it was like a peace. It was like a calm. And I stopped crying. That's what the story of Ruth teaches us. The principle from Ruth, God's mercy relieves our pain when we grieve. Again, remember, it's not pity. He's not just feeling sorry for us. He's meeting us at our need. It's a complete and total understanding of our loss, our human plight. Here's number three. Case study number three is Job. We learned about Job last time. Job's suffering was off the charts. I mean, Job lost everything but his life and his wife. He lost his fortune, he lost his children, and he lost his health. There's a part of Job's story where he's sitting alone in the darkness trying to treat his own wounds. His body is hurting, it's ailing. He'd probably rather be dead in that moment than be alive, and that's when it occurs to him. That even in that sorry, miserable state, God's mercy is surrounding him. Job 10, verse 12. You gave me life and showed me hesed, kindness, mercy. In your providence, you watched over my spirit. Even in the midst of Job's physical pain, he recognized God's mercy. The principle is this. God's mercy relieves our hopelessness when we endure pain. Now, this one may be difficult for some of us to accept because when we think... If God's going to intervene in my suffering, then he's going to remove all the pain. That's not the case. Very rarely is that the case. It certainly was not the case when it came to the life of Job. Even in the midst of his physical pain, however, Job recognized God's mercy. He understood that his physical pain was being monitored by a merciful Heavenly Father. God's mercy relieves our hopelessness when we endure pain. That's what his story teaches us. One last example. Case study number four, that's David. David's one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament. There is a pain that is even more brutal than the suffering of physical pain, and David knew it. The pain of spiritual isolation from God can be unbearable. It can be dramatic. I mean, when you care about what God thinks, but now you've disobeyed, you've fallen into sin, and now you refuse to own it. Oh, that kind of spiritual isolation is brutal. See, the human conscience can bring about a kind of weight on us that's too heavy to bear. And David understood it. 
David's egregious sin with Bathsheba. It started out as adultery, and it quickly escalated into murder, isolated this, quote, man with a heart after God from the very God that he loved and worshipped. But even then, according to the story, God's mercy was working in the background. David wrote in Psalm 32 and verse 3, When I kept silent, in other words, when I did not deal with my sin, when I didn't own it, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long, for day and night your hand was heavy on me. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love, there's the word, hesed, unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. You see, even in David's most disgraceful season of sin, God was there ready to extend his mercy. Do you understand that it's only because of God's mercy that when we fail, we can get up, we can brush ourselves off, and we can start again? Only a merciful God would allow such a transformation. That's God's mercy. That's hesed. The principle is this. God's mercy relieves the guilt of our transgression. God's mercy relieves the guilt of our transgression. It was David who also wrote Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd... And surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Even when I've chosen to ignore him, even when you choose to resist him, God's mercy is still working in the background. He knows exactly where our sin can take us, and yet he refuses to let us stay there. That is a merciful God. That's loving kindness. Look, I could go on for another hour. There are many examples in the Old Testament of God's hesed or his mercy, his loving kindness. But what about you and me? What about here and now? What about my circumstance? What about my misery? Is God's work working in, is God's mercy working in the background of my life as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. Bank on it. If you've ever been miserable, then you have experienced God's mercy the same way that Joseph did, Ruth did, Job did, and David did. When you've been treated unfairly, God's mercy helps you overcome the bitterness. When you experienced loss, it was God's mercy that helped relieve the pain. When you endure physical pain, it's God's mercy that alleviates some of the hopelessness. And when we confess our sin, it's God's loving kindness that relieves my guilt. So, back to Mary in Luke 1. Mary knew a lot about mercy, to be so young. Her knowledge and understanding of this incredibly complex concept goes way beyond her years. For instance, according to what we read a moment ago, Mary understood that God is mindful of our humble estate. That comes from verse 48. In fact, that's what she said. I praise you. I thank you that you're mindful of my humble, fragile, frail human estate. He's aware of our fallible, sometimes miserable existence. And Mary understood that from verse 50. Mary knew that God's mercy is available to anyone who's willing to ask for it. She said in verse 50, his mercy extends to those who fear him. God's mercy reaches down to meet us at our need. He does not expect us to reach up, especially when we're miserable, especially when we're suffering. And then number three, God's character demands his mercy. It's part of who he is. God cannot not be merciful. God knows. He'll never forget you. He'll never ignore you. Because mercy is a part of who he is. Now, how did Mary know so much about mercy? 
Mercy's knowledge, Mary's knowledge and understanding of mercy is because of her rich Jewish heritage. Mercy flows through the pages of your Old Testament. You ever meet a skeptic or a critic of your faith? And they'll say, man, there's a whole lot of judgment and wrath in that Old Testament of yours. A whole lot of God's anger in that Old Testament. A whole lot of death and dying in that Old Testament. Let me tell you something. There's a whole lot of mercy in that Old Testament too. A whole lot. The reason Mary knew so much about mercy was because Mary knew a whole lot about this. This is the Ark of the Covenant. This is on loan from Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Obviously, that's not the real Ark. That's just sort of a representation of what it most likely looked like based upon the description in your Old Testament. Mary understood the Ark of the Covenant and mercy's role in the history of Israel. This was Mary's heritage. The Ark of the Covenant had been around since the days of Moses. The Ark of the Covenant believed to house the very presence of God. That's why the Ark of the Covenant went before God's nation into every battle, everywhere they went. There were very specific, particular rules about handling the Ark of the Covenant. It was so revered by the people of Israel that if you mishandled the Ark of the Covenant, you could, be, you could die. It was just that serious. Mary understood mercy and its role in the Ark of the Covenant. You see, for centuries, about 1,400 years, this box, this golden chest, represented God's mercy to the Jews. You see, inside the Ark of the Covenant are the tablets containing the law, the Ten Commandments. The same two tablets that Moses brought down from the mountain, Mount Sinai, the same two tablets that point to God's holiness, his righteous demand for holiness, and the judgment of God inside the Ark of the Covenant. But every year, at one time during the year, only one man, the high priest, could take the blood from the sacrifice, enter the Holy of Holies, and make the sacrifice for atonement. Now, the ark was housed in the most intimate part of the tabernacle, or the temple. In the very center of that structure, there was a small room, and the ark of the covenant was in the back room behind a very thick curtain. And as I said, on one day a year, one person among them, the high priest, would ceremonially consecrate and cleanse himself he would gather the blood from the sacrifice. He would enter the Holy of Holies. And do you see that saucer-like feature in the center of the lid? As the angels, they're called cherubim, bow in astonishment, amazement, humility, and reverence before God, the priest would pour out the blood of the sacrifice to cover the law. That's the symbolism. The blood, the mercy of God, covers the law. You see, the most intimate place in the temple is not a place of God's law. It's not a place of his judgment. It's not even a place of his holiness. It's a place of his mercy. And Mary knew it. Further, Mary knew that very, very few people would ever even see that with their own eyes. No one got to enter the Holy of Holies. No one saw the Ark of the Covenant, but she knew that God's supreme sacrifice, his only son, Jesus Christ, would be seen by all. 
beautiful when you think about it. When the world received Jesus in Bethlehem, at just the right moment of time, the world received God's mercy personified. Jesus would minister to thousands of people in mercy before making the ultimate sacrifice of mercy on the cross for all. The blood of Jesus Christ would cover God's law, his demand for perfection and holiness. His mercy would demonstrate that above all things, God understands me. He knows me. Those are perhaps two of the most intimate words in the human language. I understand. When I say to you, I understand, if I truly have been where you are, if I truly know what you're going through, there's an instant kinship, a bond that develops between us. When I say, I understand, it's almost as if I take some of your burden and put it on my shoulder as well. And oh, by the way, the words are so sacred to us, you better not say it if you really don't mean it. Because if you don't really understand and you tell me you do understand, it's likely to offend me. That's how important those two words are. Christmas demonstrates that God understands. That's what mercy is all about. Christmas demonstrates that God gets us. He knows all of our potential, but he completely understands our weakness as well. So wherever you are and whatever you've done and whatever shame or guilt you continue to carry, you've got to let his mercy cover your shame, relieve your guilt. What a gift. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, it is indeed a precious gift to know that you don't simply pity us, you don't feel sorry for us, and that's what motivates you to help us. Father, you understand us. You know who we are and what we are. You know what we're capable of, and you know the great extent to which we can fail you, and yet you still continue to offer up your compassion, your loving kindness, your mercy. Father, may we walk in it even this week. Father, may we recognize the beauty of what you gave us when you gave us your son, Jesus Christ, the supreme, most eloquent example of mercy the world has ever known or seen. Go with us now. With your blessing upon each of us, I ask in the name of Christ, amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Hope to see you tonight at 4.30. I'll catch you then.